You're listening to audio from Mountain View Church, located in Murphy, North Carolina. If you'd like more information, you can find us at www.mtnvu.org or on Instagram and Facebook at Mountain View Church NC. We have very little respect for the bodies that God has given us. After all, for many, an infant in the womb is just a clump of cells or a worthless blob of tissue to be discarded at will. For many others, the body has no purpose but pleasure. So eat and drink and be merry and have as much sex as you can while you're young and healthy. Hook up with as many people as you can. What harm will it do? After all, as long as it feels good, it's okay, right? And then at the other end of life, a body racked with dementia or with cancer becomes a waste of space or a drain on needed resources. You could also argue, again, on the other end of the spectrum, that we're totally obsessed with the human body. There is no end to the diet programs and the exercise regimens. The fitness industry, in fact, is a $30 billion per year industry in our country. In 2018, Americans spent more than $16 billion on cosmetic plastic surgeries. We airbrush magazine photos and we internet shame those who would dare publicly display a less than picture perfect body. And truth be told, you could argue that We all hate our bodies and judge the bodies of others accordingly because we've all been conditioned by our culture to believe that the human form is supposed to look like this. And then, you could also argue that having bought into the theory of evolution and the idea that our bodies are just random collections of cells that must bend to our will, that we've actually taken it upon ourselves to decide who and what our bodies will be. In the end, having exchanged the biblical God and the biblical truth that God made them male and female for a lie, We've embraced not a godless existence, but one where we would be the gods and the goddesses who determine every aspect of our bodily existence. So if I identify as a woman, but my body is that of a male, then my body must be brought into line with the identity I choose for myself. If I identify as a man, but my body is that of a female, then my body must be brought into line with what I choose for myself. You see, no matter how you slice it, whether it's our disregard for the body or our God-like obsession with the body, one thing is clear amidst all of this body confusion we have rejected the notion that Jesus is Lord over all of life. The material and the physical, the body and the soul, 
all of it. But as always, the Bible shows us a better way. After all, the Bible's good news for fallen people who are compromised body and soul. We are an inner part and an outer part, both of which God intends to redeem and to restore through Christ. This is a message that we need to hear as much as the Corinthian church needed to hear it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 12, Paul writes to the Corinthian church, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never! Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her. For as it's written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know? that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Father, I pray that you would bless the simple reading and hearing of this word. And now as we enter into it, not only to examine it, but to submit ourselves to it as followers of Christ, I pray for your help. Father, help for this preacher, help for the hearers, help to receive and help to respond. We offer this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the word body appears numerous times in this passage, and it's specifically what Paul is talking about, right? Because within the culture of Corinth, there was both a demeaning of the human body and an obsession over the human body, much like there is in our own time. And Paul wants to remind the Corinthians that the body isn't meant for doing what we want to do with our bodies, but the body instead is for the Lord. And that's essentially the first point that Paul makes. God gave you a body to give back to him. Notice what he says in verse 13, he says specifically that the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. Now we're going to dig in specifically to sexual immorality today, but know that the fact that the body is for the Lord has many other implications and applications. What Paul is essentially saying to the Corinthians in this passage is that your body was not meant for sex tainted by sin. 
That's what sexual immorality is. We talked about that term last week. In Greek, it's the term porneia, from which we get a whole host of terms in our own language. And it essentially means this. Any and all kinds of sexual activity outside the one man, one woman, one lifetime covenant commitment of marriage. It's a very broad blanket umbrella term. And Paul says here, and he's speaking into a very sexually immoral culture, that the bodies of those who belong to the Lord aren't meant for sex that exploits other people for personal satisfaction. Our bodies are meant instead for the Lord. In other words, the Lord Jesus invites you and he invites me to offer up every part of ourselves to him, literally. You see, apprenticing with Jesus, it isn't simply about doing what we might consider spiritual things like going to church or reading our Bibles or praying or sharing the gospel with others. Apprenticing with Jesus involves learning how to bring our ears and what they hear into joyful submission to him. It involves learning how to bring our eyes and what they see into joyful submission to him. It involves learning how to bring our mouths and what comes out of them into joyful submission to him. It involves offering up your hands and your feet in service to him. And yes, friends, it involves offering up to him our sexual desires and our sexual organs. The Lord intended us to give all of it to him. Now, you might have never thought like that before. But your body, my body, is in fact the way that your faith in Christ and the way that your obedience to Christ are lived out in the world. In fact, there's no other way to live out the faith that you have in Jesus except through the body that he has given you. There's no way to live out faith and obedience but through what Paul calls the various members or parts of your body. You see, sexual immorality of various sorts. Now, Paul mentions three in the list previous to this section. He mentions sexual immorality in general. He mentions adulterers. He mentions men who practice homosexuality. And he mentions idolaters, which idolatry in ancient Corinth was closely associated with sexual immorality, which we'll see before the end of this sermon today. Now, all of those things were rampant in ancient Corinth, much as they are in our own day, which means that we need to know much as they needed to know what it looks like to be disciples of the Lord Jesus who offer up our whole lives, including our sex lives, to him. You see, the church has failed for far too long when it comes to talking about these things. We've either sent the wrong message, a much too narrow message, rather than helping our folks understand 
that the message of the Bible about sex is more than just don't do it until you get married. On the other hand, the church has been far too silent about this topic. We don't talk about it enough. We don't offer up to one another a biblical theology of sexuality so that we can then offer that up to our children. Friends, I'm going to tell you, if you're not talking with your kids about this, somebody is. Somebody is. And I want to tell you, Robin and I have committed to one another and to our girls that we're going to be the first ones. And they're going to hear a biblical theology of sex from us before they hear what they are going to hear from somebody else. I hope that you'll make that kind of commitment as well. Folks, if we don't offer up our sexual desires to Christ, ultimately we will be enslaved by those desires. You and I are either going to be mastered by the Lord Jesus Christ or we're going to be mastered by our desires. That's exactly what Paul is telling the Corinthians. So apparently there was a slogan in Corinth, okay? And it went something like this. I can do anything I want to. Everything is lawful for me. So Paul picks up on that and he says, all right, I'll give you that. But just know that not everything's helpful. Well, Paul, I can do anything I want, whether it's helpful or not. Okay, granted. But just know that I've chosen in Christ not to be enslaved by anything. Did you know that a desire that you can't help but give into is a desire that's enslaved you? Freedom from desire, freedom from sexual immorality means the freedom to say what? No. That's exactly right. No. Paul knew this. And it's why he says what he does in verse 12. Now you and I may think that we're free to do whatever we want with our bodies, but the reality is when you and I start doing whatever it is we want to do with our bodies outside of God's intended design, then it's no longer us who's calling the shot. Instead, we're letting our desires dictate our actions. And when we allow sinful desires to dictate sinful behavior, the Bible says that we are enslaved to those desires. This is why Paul says in Romans 6, verses 12 through 14, that we have to actively offer up ourselves and the various parts of our bodies to the Lord. Otherwise, sin would compel us to obey the desires of our flesh. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 6. He says, Let sin therefore not reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present the members of your body to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments 
for righteousness. For sin will no longer have dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Now, you probably well know that the objections of our culture to the biblical and Christian view of sex are many. But one in particular stands out. The Bible is just so restrictive. But listen to what Paul says. Paul says that the body is not intended for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Have you ever thought about the fact that God created you? God created you. God created your body. God created sex. And sex is a powerful, precious, and pleasure-producing gift. And all of that by God's design. All this means is that God is not anti-you. God is not anti-you, whether you're male or female. He's not anti-body. He's not anti-sex or anti-pleasure. Not at all. This simply means that God knows best how our bodies work, and he knows best how the gift of sex is designed to operate. But friends, it takes faith to believe this and walk this out in what one author has called a pornified culture where sex is on display and sex is for sale and life itself is even defined very often in terms of sexuality. Whether it's internet porn or casual hookups, we devalue and we exploit and we consume the bodies of other people for personal physical pleasure and think nothing, listen to this, and think nothing of offering our bodies to another person in the context of a whole life one flesh commitment of cross-shaped and faithful love, much less of our bodies as something for the Lord, but that's God's design. Why? Because it reflects God's self-giving, self-sacrificial, cross-shaped and faithful love for his people. Friend, God cares about what you do with your body. Because God cares about you. And he cares about who you sleep with. Because he cares about you. He cares because sex was his idea. He cares because misusing sex can cause deep and lasting hurt and damage. And he cares because he regards you and your body as worthy of care. The Lord, after all, is for the body. He gave you a body, and he intends you to offer that back to him in worship. 
in worship and obedience, trusting that he knows best how to live life in the body that he gave you. You see, faith in Christ, friends, and we've been talking about this throughout our journey in 1 Corinthians. Faith in Christ involves not only trusting him for eternity, but trusting him for everyday living. If you can entrust your forever to him, you can certainly trust that he knows best how to do life in the body that he gave you in the here and now. Now look, perhaps you're emotionally, mentally, or spiritually broken today because of the ways that you've misused your body sexually or otherwise. Or perhaps you're experiencing intense shame because of the wicked ways that others have sexually misused your body. By the ways that they've taken advantage of you for their own twisted personal pleasure. Please know this. The Lord sees you. And he isn't ashamed of you. He created you. He loves you. And he invites you to offer your whole broken self to him. You don't have to hide. He'll wrap you in his healing arms and he will tenderly restore you. Remember last week I said that there's no no sin too great that grace cannot overcome it. That's as true in this area as it is in any other. But Paul wants us to know not only that God has given us bodies to give back to him, he wants us to know that God has united us body and soul to Jesus Christ. Look at what he says in verse 14. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Just as Christ was raised, friend, you too will be raised to new life with a new body that you'll enjoy in a new heavens and in a new earth in the very presence of Christ forever. Going back to Romans 6 again, Paul talks about this in Romans 6, 1 through 4. He says, what shall we say then? Or we do continue in sin that grace may abound by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too, watch this, might walk in newness of life. This means it's no longer we who live, but Christ who lives through us. And that's exactly where Paul goes. This is why Paul can say in verse 15 that our bodies are members of Christ. In other words, we do more than merely represent a king residing in a distant land. Through our bodies, friends, we incarnate Christ's presence to the people that God has put around us. Look at what Paul says. He says, do you not know 
that your bodies are members of Christ. In a real sense then, folks, there's legitimate value in asking what was once just a fad kind of question. What would Jesus do? What would he do if he was listening with my ears? What would he do if he was watching with my eyes? What would he do if he was speaking with my mouth? What would he do if he was walking with my feet, if he was using my hands? Paul says that's exactly what he's doing. And that's exactly how we should be thinking of ourselves as followers of Jesus. You know, we may think that we're simply following in his footsteps when in reality, friends, he's the one imparting life to us through the Spirit and living out his own life through us as we go about our everyday lives as disciples. Which, by the way, when you understand that, when I understand that, It's exactly what makes Paul's question in verse 15 so incredibly shocking. What does he say? He says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Because Christ is living out his life through us and through our bodies, should we then offer up the parts of what is really his body to sexual immorality? What does Paul say? He doesn't him and Paul. In fact, he uses very strong language. He says, never. Never. In other words, what we do with our bodies, folks, matters not only because God has given us bodies to give back to him, but because the Lord Jesus has united himself to us and is living out his life in and through us. Paul rightly considers it unthinkable that the Lord Jesus would use his own body for sexual immorality. That's the point Paul is making. And because we're united to Christ, Paul says we should consider sexual immorality out of bounds too. As Paul explains in verse 16, to engage in sexual activity is to become one with that person. Now I want you to kind of dial in with me because Paul makes an argument here and I want you to follow it as we work our way through it, okay? He says, or do you not know in verse 16 that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. All right. So we tend to think of sex increasingly in our culture as a merely physical and temporary act, okay? But Paul reminds us that sex as a physical act 
is designed to unite not only two bodies, but two people. Remember, there's an outer part and an inner part. Two whole people. Again, because we human beings are both body and soul, each part affecting the other in dramatic and often mysterious ways. This means sex is never just sex. We'll say that again. Sex is never just sex. Whether it's with a prostitute or the husband or wife down the street, the guy that you hooked up with at the bar, your boyfriend, your coworker, or your fiance. Sex is intended to express physically the, the commitment of one man and one woman giving themselves to one another fully and totally for one lifetime. But, and this is the argument Paul's getting at, okay? But when it's ripped from that context of mutual life commitment, it, it merely becomes a tool for personal pleasure. More than that, it becomes a lie. It becomes a lie. And Paul picks up on that when he draws the contrast between the two becoming one body and the two becoming one flesh. Do you notice how he said it differently? He said, when a man hooks up with a prostitute, he becomes one body with her. But remember what the text in Genesis says. The text in Genesis says, when a man and woman come together and they commit their entire lives to one another, they become one flesh. When a man and woman become one flesh through the commitment of marriage, listen, they don't become just one thing numerically, okay? But they unite with one another and they become a single whole piece, a new entity, united spiritually, united emotionally, united relationally, united financially, united faithfully, exclusively, purposefully. Now watch, sex is the physical expression of the one flesh relationship of marriage. It's the, it's the physical expression of the oneness that husband and wife share. It's an act of openness, of vulnerability, of sharing everything, unhidden and unashamed. It's, it's a beautiful picture of what the full, complete, and faithful sharing of marriage is supposed to look like. So, then to become only one body, listen, this is incredibly important, to become only one body with someone you aren't otherwise committed to in a unified, whole life way is a lie. Sex is intended to communicate commitment, oneness, wholeness, faithfulness. To have sex with someone other than the one you've committed your whole life to is to communicate the exact opposite. When you say, I'll give you my body, but not everything else, you're saying, I don't quite value my body 
enough to withhold it until you're willing to take everything. Or I don't quite value you enough to give you everything, but I'll give you this piece of me. The context of marriage is vitally important for this precious, precious gift because it's a physical communication of total life oneness. And it says something about God when we betray that. It says something about Christ's relationship, his faithful commitment to his bride when we betray the use of that gift. Sex outside of a one-man, one-woman lifetime commitment of marriage does not speak well about the faithfulness of Christ, the bridegroom to his church, which is ultimately what the gift is intended to picture. This is the kind of sex that likes to take something but isn't interested in giving everything, as I said. Look, take the casual hookup, which is so prevalent among teens and 20-somethings today. When you hook up with someone, you're essentially saying to that person and they're saying to you, I'm going to give you a small part of me, but you're not worth me giving you everything. Bottom line, this kind of sex whether it's sex with a prostitute, sex with a neighbor down the street, or the cute coworker, or the boyfriend who likes the goods but refuses to marry you, is selfish sex. Period. Sex without a commitment, sex without faithfulness. So as Beyonce said, ladies, if he ain't going to put a ring on it, I'm just saying. These kinds of sexual encounters are the farthest thing from who Jesus is. He is selfless. He is committed. He is faithful. And because we've been united to him in spirit, we should express in and through our bodies and our sexuality his selflessness. His commitment, his faithfulness. Folks, this is a vital reminder, again, that our relationship with Christ isn't simply spiritual in nature. It must and has to be reflected into our everyday lives. We're also reminded that we as Christians must learn to think about everything through the lens of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Listen, there is a just-tell-me-what-to-do tendency in our culture, and it's allowed us in the church to kind of sidestep deep and consistent reflection upon the Scriptures, and we are poorer disciples because of it. Listen, we're more apt to come to the Bible looking for inspiration or for some quick answer to a personal problem, then we are wisdom. But wisdom requires reflection, which is modeled by Paul in this passage. Wisdom requires more than quick do's and don'ts. Wisdom requires that we connect the dots between truth and life. Only then, will you and I understand not only what needs to change, but what? Why? 
So what does Paul do in this passage? He doesn't simply offer the answer to sexual immorality, don't do it. He says instead this, your body belongs to the Lord. The Lord is for your body. You are united to Jesus Christ. You are one with him, body and soul. Therefore, in no uncertain terms, flee. Run the other direction when it comes to sexual immorality. Do's and don'ts, they may work for a little while. But Paul knows that the route to real and lasting change comes from the inside out through a living, breathing relationship with Christ. Finally, Paul saves the best for last. He says in verse 18, every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. In other words, when you and I sin sexually, we sin against our own bodies. A better way to say it would be to translate it this way. When you and I sin sexually, we sin toward our bodies. That makes sexual sin something of a different kind of sin than other categories of sin. Now, why does Paul say that? Sexual sin isn't unique because it involves our bodies. You can curse someone out with your mouth. You can hit someone with your fist. You can kick someone when they're down with your foot. But listen, sexual immorality is unique because it's full of the self. It is fundamentally idolatry of the self. Paul is saying that it's one thing to worship something else in creation. It's it's one thing to worship a false god like Zeus or even the sun, as bad as those things are. But it's another thing entirely to turn your heart's worship exclusively toward yourself and exclusively toward pleasure in your own body. That's why sexual immorality is particularly ruinous. It causes us to look inward to ourselves rather than outward. In the end, it's all about the pursuit of self-centered pleasure at the expense of other people. Friends, this is why, by the way, sexual pleasure, no matter how far you pursue it, no matter how many partners you pursue it with, will never satisfy you. It can't. It's a great gift, but it'll make a terrible God. And it'll only keep you coming back for more and more and more, thinking that the next experience or the next hookup or the next video will finally fulfill you. This is why Paul says in verse 12 that he won't be dominated by anything, including his sexual appetite. It's also why it won't simply work to say stop it. 
when it comes to certain behaviors. Sexual immorality flows from a heart that is bent away from God, a heart that must be bent back toward him by grace. Otherwise, you and I are just stapling fruit on a dead tree. Jesus said in Matthew 15, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. There is hope though. Hope you know that. There is hope. Remember last week's message. I said, nobody's too far gone. The Lord Jesus loves to liberate idolaters who come to the end of the road and realize that sexual immorality takes a whole lot more than it gives. If you're tired of chasing satisfaction down a dead end road, friend, Jesus invites you to stop. And to turn around and to come to him, crawling if you have to. And to offer up to him your guilt, your shame, your body, and your empty pursuit of pleasure. He can make you new if you allow him. He will forgive you, set you free, and make his home in you. And that's exactly what Paul wants to remind us of in verse 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Friend, let that sink in. If you're a Christian, your body is a temple for the God who cannot himself be contained by the universe that he's made. Let it sink in that your body is a temple for the one whose glory will one day fill the earth. Let it sink in in that your body is a temple for the one whose holy presence was once off limits to all but a few chosen who got to go behind the curtain once a year. And because your body is a temple of God's spirit, you and I should run away from sexual immorality lest you and I desecrate the holy temple of God. Corinth was um, home to a temple to the goddess of love, Aphrodite. In fact, the temple sat on a large hill overlooking the entire city, and it was home to temple prostitutes, among whom sex could be bought and sold as an act of idol worship. Additionally, sexual immorality was a common thing at Corinthian dinner parties among those who were more well-to-do. But Paul says, Paul says that such acts of idolatrous, self-centered worship have no place among Christians because our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. Our bodies are sacred spaces. The only response, friends, to this such were some of you but God grace 
The grace that's compelled God to make his home in us is to now offer up these sacred spaces to him in everyday worship. To say to the Lord each and every day, with this body I thee worship. After all, as Paul says in verse 20, we've been bought with a price. What was that price? The Lord Jesus offered up his own body to be broken for our sin. That we might now offer up our bodies to him in worship and obedience. So friends, as Paul says in verse 20, go glorify God in your body. Let's pray. Father, we ask your richest blessing upon this time in your word today. God, I pray that As the seed has been planted, your Holy Spirit would take it, work it down deep into the soil of our lives and cause it to produce the fruit that ultimately glorifies Christ. The fruit of changed minds, changed hearts, changed lives, and changed relationships. And Father, as Paul says, as he closes out this passage, whether it's regarding sexuality or any other area of our lives, help us as embodied people to glorify God with our bodies. We offer them up to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's uh, stand together wherever you are and let's respond with our mouths by singing praise to the Lord.